0: Some years ago, the chaplain of the Kansas State Senate prayed this prayer. Omniscient Father, help us to know who is telling the truth. One side tells us one thing, and the other just the opposite. And if neither side is telling the truth, we would like to know that too. And if each side is telling half the truth, Give us the wisdom to put the right halves together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I I think he was trying to be humorous. Um, But I would say things are much worse today than what the chaplain describes there. Today we live in a culture of half-truths, if that. Outright lies, perpetual distortions, skewed one-sided presentations, in the sort of ironic and irrational situation where we have a culture that denies that there even is such a thing as truth and then regularly makes pronouncements with the authority of a papal decree. We are reminded, I think, of Isaiah's words where he says of his own time, this is the 8th century BC, truth has stumbled in the streets. We are surrounded By rivers, rivers of reckless, undisciplined speech. We're just used to it at this point. And of course then we generate our own streams of untruthful speech. Of lies. Even if only little white lies. Of impure speech. Of unfair speech. Of careless speech. Of uncharitable speech. And I leave aside for the time being just shallow and insipid speech. So any sensitive soul is going to recognize just how wild and undisciplined the tongue can be. How in James's extraordinary words, which we heard in the New Testament lesson, it is set on fire by hell and sets the course of human life on fire. The tongue, what does he say? He says it's a restless evil. There's a deadly poison about it. The tongue can take a human life into the realm of the principalities and powers. So the power of death and life are in the tongue. But we're often blithely unaware of that power. And thus unaware of how our speech, our unwholesome speech, or our vapid speech of what that speech is doing to ourselves or to others. We tend to think words are tax-free, that they carry no moral weight. They're just things. The the great Scottish author and minister, George MacDonald, he said, perhaps surprisingly, but with brutal honesty, he said, I always try, at least I think I do, to be truthful, All the same, I tell a great many petty lies. It's remarkable because that's a sensitive soul right there. He says, you know, if I put it to the test, I have to admit that I engage in just, just a little bit of shading, just a little embellishment, just slight misrepresentations of the other side, just tiny little slanders, just a little lack of clarity or a lack of charity. Just bending things a little bit. Nothing really big. Nothing really big. I'm just not super accurate. So if you speak, then this text speaks to you. If you have a tongue, this text is going to touch you there. We're continuing, of course, to look at our Lord's Sermon on the Mount, right? The most challenging piece of ethical teaching ever to confront the human race. This is, this is Matthew chapter 5, and we'll make two points. They're there on, on the outline in your bulletin, swearing and simplicity. First, then swearing. Right, so what happened last week? Right. Just prior to this text, last week we saw this. Jesus addressed a kind of permissiveness that had come to reign in contemporary teaching on marriage and divorce. And here he addresses a kind of permissiveness which was prevalent in the realm of speech. So the connection is this. Even as marriage is inviolable and sacred, so speech is to be utterly truthful, unmixed with falsehood or deceit. For Jesus, infidelity and in speech is the fount of other infidelities. So he begins, you have heard it said to the people long ago, don't break your oath or don't swear falsely, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. Now here he's not citing any one particular Mosaic law, but it's a good summary of many laws. This idea of vows is, the Old Testament is replete with it. So for example, the third commandment says you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And the commandment is first and foremost about swearing an oath in a legal setting. It's about perjury. It's about other things as well, but it's in a fundamental way about perjury. Leviticus 19 says, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of the Lord your God. Profanity is first and foremost not a list of forbidden words. It's treating God's name, his attributes, his character, his being as if they were light or inconsequential or common. So what is in view here is the making of a vow, an oath-bound promise to the Lord, and then breaking the vow, thus swearing falsely. You have heard it said, you shall not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. And then Jesus, again, here he acts as one who stands over the law, the fulfiller of the law, the one who tells the true intention and extent of the law Right? The end or goal of the law, he renders his judgment and says, but I say to you. Right? He's the only one in human history who can say that but. Nobody else can stand up and say, you read in Moses' law this, but I say to you. But Jesus does that. And here's what he says. He says, do not swear an oath at all. Now that would get the attention of a first century Jew. Because, as I said, their Bible is full of oath-taking. It appears that Jesus is making an absolute prohibition. No swearing of oaths. And some, some in the history of the church, and some still today, read the text that way. No oaths. I have a friend, this is almost 40 years ago now, who read the text that way and was and, and felt that he should never take an oath. He worked with me at IBM. And I remember the run-up to his marriage. He was engaged, but he didn't want to take any wedding vows. It makes for a very uncomfortable engagement. <laughs> like, how, how do I put this? What can I say? Can I take an oath? Can I make a vow? What do I do? I'll do my best. <laughs> but it was because he had a sort of Sensitive conscience. Jesus says, take no oaths at all. Don't, make, don't swear. Don't make any promises. You can't control the future. So this would entail, it's far-reaching what a person does here, right? It would entail no serving in the military, no life in politics, no holding of an office which requires an oath, no giving of testimony in court. But I say to you, do not swear at all. So, for example, the Anabaptists, the, the spiritual ancestors to groups like the Quakers or the Mennonites, they see to this day a complete banning of oath-taking here. After all, that is what the words plainly say. George Fox, who was the, uh, the founder of the Quakers, was sentenced to prison for refusing to take an oath. And he famously told the judges... You have given me a book here, talking about the Bible. You have given me a book here to kiss and to swear on. And this book, which you have given me, says, kiss the sun." And the son says in this book, swear not at all. I say, Fox continued, as the book says, and yet you imprison me. Why do you not imprison the book? So the logic is impeccable, Right. And the conviction is admirable. And it certainly seems they have the plain, express meaning of the text on their side. Yet, if that is what is being taught here, then Jesus' statement would entail a radical break with the whole Old Testament law. I I had a New Testament professor... He taught us New Testament exegesis. And at the beginning of the course, he said, I'm going to tell you something which you're all going to be shocked with. And then by the end of the course, you'll understand what I mean. And what he told us at the beginning was, it's not about what the text of the Bible says. And of course, a bunch of young seminary students are like, what? That's, that seems strange. So it, it's not about what the text says. It's about what the text means by what the text says. Now, by the end of the course, you realize that the text says no swearing. The question, of course, is what does the text mean by what the text says? And here, this means we have to delve into the broad and deep and layered and rich context of the text. And I want to take a couple of minutes to do that. So we we, we mentioned the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain in that Commandment, the rabbis, they focused on the name of the Lord more than they focused on the in vain part. Their concern was to guard a certain kind of purity in oath-taking or swearing. They wanted to guard the integrity of swearing by the name of the Lord. So they were more worried about profanity than they were about perjury. So what happened, and we have this documented from Jewish sources, in fact, it's really Um, Visible in the Matthew 23 part of the gospel lesson. What happened was this. They developed this elaborate system of rules for vow-making. Now, I know this can seem far away from modern life, but we're going to get back to the text in a minute. So, and it kind of went like this. Vows made in the explicit name of the Lord were treated strictly. But there were other ways to swear or to take a vow which didn't expressly use the Lord's name. And those vows were treated less strictly even non-binding. And so what Jesus is doing here, most basically in the text, is he's rejecting this kind of tortured reasoning. Because it led to the making of vows and then treating the performance of those vows as optional. So the Matthew 23 passage, which we read, let me read a part of it again. He says, You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But he who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. So you could swear by the temple and not keep your oath. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, you're bound by the oath. Same thing with the altar and the gift on the altar. Right. And Jesus says, anyone who swears by the altar, I tell you, swears by it and everything on it. Anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and anyone who dwells in it. Anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and the one who sits on it. Right? So they've constructed this system. You swear by the gold of the temple, that's a binding oath. You swear by the altar, that's nothing. If you swear by the gift on the altar, that's a binding oath. It gets dizzying. And Jesus comes along and says, look, everything belongs to God. Heaven is God's throne. Jerusalem is God's city. The altar is consecrated by God's presence who dwells in the temple. That's why he says in verse 34, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. See, if he had just stopped there, we'd all be Anabaptists. But he says this, either by heaven, and now he's directly alluding to the current corrupt and abusive practice by doing this, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. So you want to swear by heaven and avoid any reference to God? You can't, because heaven is God's throne you want to swear by the earth and avoid any reference to God's name, you can't because the earth is his footstool. The world and everything in it is the Lord's, so enough, Jesus says, enough of this evasive swearing and oath-taking. God is the God of truth, and so all speech and all oaths should reflect his fidelity. All speech is answerable to his sovereign authority. The Lord is the creator of our lips. And our mouths and our tongues, they are not our own. So there's to be no refuge in swearing by something allegedly detached from God and his name. God cares, Jesus says, about you profaning his name and committing perjury. So once we understand this, once we understand this ancient context, we can confidently say that Jesus is not absolutely forbidding all vows. Of course, Jesus is a provocative teacher. He often does this, right? He uses hyperbolic speech, intentionally exaggerated speech, where he seems to absolutely pit one thing against another thing, but he does not intend for us to take the contrast in some absolute way. If you're still queasy about oaths, let me say just a couple more words. First, it's important to see this. God takes oaths in the Bible, lots of them. He, he, He swears the oath of the covenant with Abraham, of the covenant with David. He guarantees the priesthood of Melchizedek with an oath. Now, it's true, it's true. Even though in a perfect world, oaths would not be necessary. Even though truthful people don't need oaths. Yet an honest person is not forbidden from taking an oath, if called upon, to do so by some authority somewhere. As long as you're in a situation, Jesus is saying, you know, without the evasiveness that's in view here, a situation where the truth is not threatened, vows are fine. Jesus himself takes a bow in this same gospel in Matthew 26 after saying this. The high priest says to Jesus at his trial, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, yes. It is as you say. So even the words yes and no, they can be truthful replies to oaths imposed by an authority, even an unjust authority. This is what Jesus does before the high priest. He lets his yes be yes, and he takes an oath. Paul takes about seven oaths in his letters. We just don't notice them. He'll say something like, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it. I call God as my witness, he'll say. I assure you before God, what I am writing to you is no lie. He takes a Nazarite vow in Acts 18 and on and on. So we can do the same things. And we do do the same things. Turns out you have a different kind of civilization if you take the Anabaptist prong of this argument. Do you swear to tell the truth? The whole truth and nothing but the truth. I do. That's letting your yes be yes. It's also taking a vow. Do you take this woman as your lawful wedded wife? I do. Do you swear to protect, preserve, and defend the Constitution of the United States? I do. So there's really no conflict at the end of the day between letting your yes be yes and taking a lawfully imposed vow. But the text is after something deeper as well. Oaths and vows will not save us as a society unless we grasp this underlying deeper point. And that brings me to the second issue here, which is simplicity. Jesus again says in verse 37, you know, let your yes be yes, or your no be no. Anything beyond this, he says, is from the realm of evil. Again, he appears to be saying, enough vowing, just say yes or no. But I've just gone over that in the context and I'm not going to rehearse it here. He's basically saying if you're not in this situation you can vow. If you're in that situation don't play along. So here I want to back up for a minute though. So oaths and vows are primarily in view. But there is this deeper issue right? Which is truthfulness in speech. That's the bigger problem here. Speaking with simplicity speaking with purity speaking with Accuracy. Speech has to conform itself to the reality that it's describing. Right? Speech has to know that all speech is before the face of the Lord God. That before his, underneath his name, that name that the rabbis were so perversely jealous to protect. I mean, why do vows even arise in a society? They arise because we're deceitful and we lie. And we need to find ways to say you can't really lie in this situation. Vows arise because people's simple word cannot be trusted. So the Anabaptists are onto something, right? Vows are already an admission that we're in a broken situation, some kind of a provisional situation. I used to work with a guy. Who had a sort of verbal tick by which he would occasionally say to me, Now to be frank. And he did this a lot. Now to be frank. One day, I said to him, Why don't we do this? I'll assume you're always being frank, and you tell me when you're lying. It's much more helpful to me if you come into my office and say, Kevin. Now I'm going to lie to you. <laughs> I mean, what is implied when someone says to you, can I be frank? Well, I mean, something about the ordinary speech might be deficient. So, it turns out that in the modern era, we conjure up silly little O's and verbal tics that are meant to convince the other person that we are really, 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 really telling the truth this time. Right? like I swear on my mother's grave or I swear on a stack of bibles or just nowadays just seriously we'll do it or really but it's all a rarely recognized confession about our own tendency toward dishonesty towards shady again if you think of lying in just stark you know you know bipolar terms you might say well I'm not a liar But remember George MacDonald, he thinks of lying on a spectrum. There's a spectrum of shading and inaccuracy and a lack of charity and a bending kind of thing, right? And all of us are on that spectrum somewhere. So oaths, while they are lawful, oaths should not be necessary. And even now, they should be very, very rare. Your civilization has broken down if you have to constantly put people under oath. So the, the first century Jewish historian Josephus, he says of the Essenes. Now the Essenes were a sect, a breakaway group of, of Jews, contemporary with Jesus, who left the Jerusalem temple and, and thought it was corrupt, and they moved out to the Dead Sea. Right? So the, And this is what Josephus says about them. Whatsoever they say is firmer than an oath. What a testimony that is. What whatsoever they say is firmer than an oath, but swearing is avoided by them, and they esteem it worse than perjury. For they say that he who cannot be believed without swearing by God is already condemned. You know what that is? That's first century Anabaptists. There's something admirable about it. We can, we, while we disagree with them about the legitimacy of oaths, the underlying point needs to be taken, right? Right? You want people to say about you, whatever he or she says is firmer than an oath. It's already a kind of defeat to have to be put under oath. We agree with the Essenes. We agree with the Anabaptists. We agree with Jesus on the need for simplicity. Our words should be enough. Yes or no. Say what you mean. Say only what you mean. And mean what you say. Because it's this same Jesus who gives the teaching here who says this. Everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word. It's interesting that he doesn't say every evil word or every sinful word. It's just careless, empty words. Everyone's going to give an account. We, we all, I do this for a living so I can assure you, like we talk too much. On the day of judgment, you're going to look back and think, I, I don't think, I don't know if I needed 75% of those words. Right? Every one of them should be weighed and measured much more than they are. We're just used to it. You're going to give an account for every careless word. And then Jesus says this, For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus is not going to have to even refer to your deeds He'll be able to convict or acquit you on the testimony of your own mouth. Perhaps by the volume of the testimony. So it's a sobering text. You may not have a vowing problem. But we all have this speech problem as people who are to reflect the, the God of truth who has become incarnate in Christ who said, I am the truth and who sanctifies you by the spirit of truth. We we regard the truth itself, in its sacredness, as more valuable than the whole cosmos, John Henry Newman said in the 19th century. So, consecrate your tongue in simplicity, purity, and truthfulness of speech. For as Isaiah said in our call to worship, the one who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. Amen. Amen.